0: Welcome to Test and Code, a podcast about software development and software testing. A listener named Tony sent in a question that is possibly terribly summarized by how do you write tests for things that aren't easy to write tests for? Of course, different types of applications have different test strategies, so there's not a universal answer. Um, But... To help me get started answering the question, I asked my uh, friend Anthony Shaw to come on the show, and we discussed it for a while. But I know some of you out there have experience and expertise around how to tackle this kind of problem and similar problems. Um, Listen to the discussion Anthony and I have about it, and let me know if you have any techniques or tips you'd like to add. There's a contact form on Test and Code, or send me a message on Twitter where I'm at Brian Aukins. Thank you to Patreon supporters for sponsoring this episode and every episode. Become a supporter by going to testincode.com. There is a donate option in the menu. Special shout out to Super Hacker supporters Andrew, Evan, Stephen, Steve, Jordan, and Oliver. Now, on with the show. Uh, welcome to Testing Code, and I'm here, my your normal host, Brian Akin. but I've got Anthony Shaw here. We, of course, had Anthony on before. Uh, we talked about testing and DevOps, and it was very popular, and a lot of people really appreciated that one. So, um, And I enjoyed talking to Anthony. What I really wanted to focus on for a bunch of this episode is I got a, a listener that um, sent me an email and said, um, you know, I'm just going to read this. Uh, Let me bring it up. Um, It was from Tony, and he said, um, How does one migrate their thinking and code writing style from not using or writing unit tests to writing and using unit tests? And I'm going to jump in and substitute just automated tests because I think both are important. Um, He says, It follows on. uh, The reason I ask is that I work at a place where the Python framework uh, was poorly written. Much of it cannot be used with Python tools, such as PyLint, PyFlakes, and various unit test frameworks. As such, I've learned to write some bad code very well. Um, and uh, I'm now at a different department where Python isn't very used very much, but I still write all of my tools in Python. That said, I don't know how to write Python code that can be unit tested, nor refactor my existing code to do the same. I have your book. Thank you, Tony, uh, which is a great resource. If you've already been using unit tester knows it doesn't help someone in my situation who is trying to learn how to write testable code. For example, if you have a function that's called like add two numbers and returns the addition of two numbers, that's no problem. I know how to test that, but most of my code doesn't look like that. So that's the gist of it. Um, and, uh, and I'm sorry that I kind of, uh, I, I don't think I was, wasn't intending the book to be just for unit tester knows people. I was hoping that people could, uh, approach it without that, without knowing those. Um, but, uh, that's what we want to try to tackle today is, uh, if your test is, if your code isn't simple, simple, functional, uh, code, how do you test it? So, uh, it's a big topic. Um, do you have any comments before we start? Tony, Tony, uh, Anthony, sorry.
1: <laughs> it's either Anthony or Anthony, depending on which uh, part of the world you come on. Well, what do you prefer? I, I really don't mind because in the UK, which is where I'm from, then it's Anthony's, so that H is silent. Um, but in Australia, where I now live, it's Anthony. So I've had to just um, get used to being called Anthony.
0: Well, Anthony sounds fancier, so I'll call you that.
1: <laughs> okay, we'll go with that. Most people just call me Ant, so that's, that's easy. Okay. Um, Yeah, no, I I read through that and looking at the, I guess, some examples. So I I try to think of an analogy we could use for the episode because I think that would help people understand, you know, the situation that many people face. And if you're stepping into a fairly mature software project and it's been written in a way which is testable, it's difficult to empathize with people who are saying, you know, they basically have code which is hard to test. So I was thinking of an app we could um, we could use as an analogy for this episode. And so if you imagine that someone's written a Python script which generates pictures of dogs, um, now it's you know many thousands of lines long. There's no functions in there. It's all basically just one um, procedural script from start to finish, uh, and the code somehow generates pictures of dogs artificially now i guess the only way you know whether it's working or not is to look at the picture at the end and as a human say does that look like a dog (laughs) um (laughs) and (laughs) so uh, the question is like how would you how would you convert that into a set of automated tests because because if you tried to do an automated integration test you'd have to actually teach the computer how to recognize a dog Like that would be the first thing you'd have to do. And then you say, well, my code that I'm writing that's going to have to recognize whether it's a dog or not is closely coupled to the script that I'm writing, which generates a dog. So if my dog detection test, you know, it ends up being having similar or the same bugs as my other test, um, as my application, then I haven't really achieved anything by doing that. So I guess that's, um, paraphrasing the problem that the the reader sent across to us. And I have definitely seen this in lots of apps um, and programs in the past where people claim that it's hard to test. And it basically is because they've written an application which is very procedural, it's not really modularized very well, um, and the output is really the only artifact you have to go by.
0: Okay, but let's stick with this for just a little bit. Um, the Is our dog generating program? Is it generating random dogs or is it, uh, generating dogs based on some input?
1: I mean, you, you, you specify the, the shade of the fur maybe, um, and the breed, maybe you could say you want a Shih Tzu or a a Poodle and it would generate a dog for you. So yeah, you give it, you get a couple of inputs, um, and it would generate a dog picture.
0: Well, I'm assuming if, well, okay. So the, 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 um, I'm jumping to a conclusion that if I give it the same input, it's going to give me the same dog output. Um, And if that's not true, then it's definitely hard to test. Then it's still, it may as well just be random. Uh, But if, if you can predict, like if if it can be able to generate the same dog over and over again, um, then we can think of the entire thing as a function and we can test its input and output and compare the, the output to known, known input to known output. Right.
1: Is that a, do you think that's a good place to start? Because let's say that it's generating a picture of a cat accidentally, if you provide the wrong species, um, and you have that as your output and you program that into the test, you're kind of adding a test to match against the wrong behavior. Uh, Or do you have to validate the output first?
0: Well, like for instance, I'm going to, as an example, uh, um, a lot of, uh, Um, markdown conversion tests are a series of files with uh, markdown snippets in them and um, HTML output of the expected output. And the test is run your converter on the with on the markdown and make sure the output matches the expected output. Um, And that's a those are reasonable um, for for a lot of cases. That's a that's a. A, re- a reasonable at least regression test it might not be good for testing new features but it's uh f- to make sure that um as you add uh new elements or new types of dogs to convert to um that you the old ones are still working um mm. and uh i've definitely so wh- used that before
1: yeah so where would you where would you start brian which which test would you write first
0: um i would like right off the bat um because uh, I know where we're, partly where we want to go with this is to possibly break up the code into smaller pieces that are more testable in in like their pipelineness or modularness. So you can, into some sort of either um. Well, so an ideal te- an ideal function to test is something that has input. A functional test is like we said, an ad, like an add is easy. Um, if you have a known data set, you know, which kind of output it's going to be now, um, hitting all the cases is difficult, but, or, or deciding which subset of cases to test is, is still a hard problem. But, um, but I know we're going to try to do that. So in, I would probably wrap the, uh, known input and output because, um, because when I'm refactoring the code, I don't want it to change too much. Um, I don't want it to change its behavior. So some big high level, uh, it, with this input, I should get that output um, tests before I start chopping up the code into pieces, make sure that I'm not breaking the code while I'm chopping it into pieces.
1: And that's what you call the regression test. So that's to make sure that the, the application doesn't get worse as you change it in the future.
0: Yes. Well, it's, yeah, I get it's a form of regression test. Um I don't I don't really know what that word means because uh anything that's not a structural test is kind of a regression test. Unless it's a test of new behavior, I guess.
1: Um, you know. I was I always used it to just des- to describe a test. Um when we're testing something that we already know works. Yeah. It's you know, it's not a particular type, it's not like a unit test or an integration test. It's just let's test this thing. Yes, we know it already works. You know, we're not looking for bugs. It's just a, let's let's have a catch in place so that if we break this fundamental piece of um, of the application, that we don't go backwards.
0: Yeah. And then there's um okay, so then there's other um there's uh, l- let's assume like l- let's assume people know how to test simple functions. Um, there's other things you can do around this output for uh, that are non-regression so there's like for instance if i if i give it valid data it should produce a output so you can you know test against that that the file exists uh, the output exists at all and then certain aspects of it like uh um like if we expect a jpeg it should output a jpeg file i'm, I'm assuming there's a way to test for that um yeah um and then uh uh for instance this uh, um like a, if you've got a converter for, uh, I mean, like HTML. There's HTML validators. There's if you're com- uh, making generating C code, uh, you can run it through a C C linter or something uh, to make sure that the the output isn't doesn't have egregious bugs in it. Because um, you would assume your your uh, your wizard that you're writing that's generating code for you isn't generating bad code, so you could test against those possibly.
1: Anyway, uh. Yeah. Uh, any other ideas? Yeah, I'd probably, t- I'd probably test the, like we say, the most obvious one first, which is, um, checking that it produces an image. Um, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't jump into trying to write a test almost like a test harness or so something that would actually look at the output and, and run it through some sort of validation, um, stage just yet. I'd, I'd probably then check against, um, you know, common mistakes the user would fall into and make sure the application behaves in a nice way. So, you know, for the type of breed, for example, let's say you parsed one that didn't exist. um, Let's make sure that it doesn't, it, it gives them a, a good error back like it handles it well um it doesn't just crash completely or produce a picture of a banana or something like i'd, I'd probably write those kind of tests next um so what would you call those those types of tests giving it bad values uh,
0: negative cases
1: so i'd probably write those next and um not make them too ca- too fancy at first like just start off with some really simple use cases like what happens if you provide no breed? What happens you, if you provide an invalid breed? Um, two breeds. And then, yeah, or two breeds. You know, there's a whole bunch of different cases. And for Python, there are um, some libraries out there for uh, data, bad data in particular, like um, Unicode values and um, weird date strings and stuff like that. Um, I can't remember the name of the package. I think you've mentioned it before. It's almost like a it's a package full of input um basically static values that you can use for testing purposes and they contain all sorts of weird things.
0: Well, I mean, there's like faker that produces all sorts of stuff. Is that what you're thinking of?
1: No, I'll come back to it anyway. I remember.
0: Yeah, that's actually something people forget about a lot is to make sure that, that, um, uh, bad data produces a reasonable error message.
1: Yeah. Cause that's the most likely thing that's going to happen is that the user puts in the wrong value and, That produces an invalid image. Let's say so. Places where I've seen that really commonly is um, you basically have some sort of input. So whether that's a web interface, um, a command line, or some sort of data processing. So you know you're ingesting data from somewhere else, and then you're running it through an application, and and then it's storing it in a database or it's storing it in some sort of caching layer or something. Um, And what ends up happening is that you store. Invalid data. So instead of handling the error like it should have done it basically processes Garbage and it produces a bad output and then it stores that bad output and then that basically has consequences for the system because The system then reads that bad output from the database um, or from the cache and then it crashes other layers or other components to the application so that's where I think um, you know good test cases at the beginning would check for invalid inputs um and make sure that they're caught successfully and they're handled properly and they're not just propagated through the system.
0: Yeah, I think that's good. Um, the other thing, one of the other things I've done before is I, I've actually had quite a few cases where I've had to test something where I don't really know how to test it yet, but I know like I'm adding another dial to the system, another input value. And I know it just has to have some change. Like for example, let's say we have a, a background color for the, for our dog image, um, and so, um, I don't really know how to test to make sure the background images is, is background colors, correct. But I, I know that if I give it a different background color, the output should be different so I can give it black for instance and get that output. And then I could change that, uh, input, uh, to the background to be blue. And um, those two images better not be the identical image. Um, and uh, I mean, that, that seems obvious in this case, but um, but uh, there are cases where you just want to make sure that, that uh, one of the input values that you're passing in actually has some effect. Um, when you expect it to have an effect, it needs to at least change the output in some way.
1: Mm. Yeah, and I guess you want to make sure that the test that you're writing and providing value um as soon as possible especially if you're working in an environment where people don't see the value in tests or in testing itself um then writing lots of weird edge case error handling cases (laughs) tests at the beginning um kind of doesn't really help i'd say in changing people's perceptions like if you if you can write tests which find bugs early and quickly then definitely you can help change people's mindsets have you had any experience with that sort of situation before brian or
0: um yeah definitely we um uh the like one of the places where we uh utilize throwing automated tests right away are uh areas of the code um so let's say you're 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 using an application that um a lot of people on the team use also but there's um certain aspects of it that are not you that you can't access readily from the user interface and most of the team doesn't use on a regular basis or, but you have you have uh, certain customers that depend on it. Um, putting automated tests around those to make sure that uh, little tiny changes um, don't affect those uh, because they're they're not going to get caught until you're doing a formal, uh, formal thorough test of the entire system. So, um, yeah, I've had, definitely had cases like that uh, catching um, catching little tiny things. Uh, we've had a uh, 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 and even like like we're talking about, even if we even if you test after the fact of testing, testing a system that you think pretty much works, um, running those between every little change. If you've got multiple teams um, uh, running the same set of tests bef- when you're integrating all the different pieces of code, um, after every little piece, we pull in uh, stuff uh, code from Team A, then run the test, pull, and then pull in the stuff that Team B delivered. Uh, and then run the test. and those types of tests can isolate um, um, yeah, isolate where where the problem is so we can know where to throw the defect report to to which which team?
1: Hmm. So let's I mean in the in the dog scenario, when would you and and would you, I guess, um start to write a test that actually looks at the picture and tries to determine whether or not it's a dog like it looks at characteristics like it counts the number of legs. It looks for two eyes and two ears and the <laughs> tail. Um, like, would you would you actually go and write that kind of thing? Because I've definitely found, uh, I've been in those situations before. I can actually think of a, a package that I work on already, which is similar. It doesn't create pictures of dogs, unfortunately. Um, although that does sound fun. It uh, It's a Sphinx plugin. And it basically takes your Sphinx output and produces it in a format. Um, so instead of... HTML, which is what uh, Sphinx normally generates, uh, or PDFs, then it generates it in a um something for Atlassian Confluence, which is like a, a wiki uh, platform that Atlassian make. Um and they have their own proprietary storage format um which only Confluence understands. Um and basically the Sphinx plugin will produce um the output in a format that Confluence can use. So basically what you can do is take your all your restructured text and all your documentation, um, all, your auto, all your auto-documented or your auto classes and stuff like that. Um, you can use this plugin, and then when you run Sphinx, it will basically generate the output and then upload it into your wiki server. Um, and this has actually been pretty popular, this package. Uh, people have found it really useful for all their internal wikis where you can't just put it on reader docs. Um, and running your own reader docs server is extremely complicated um so instead they're using something like confluence which you can lock down for only internal people within a company uh so in terms of writing the tests i guess i was in the same situation at the beginning which was well i can't test if it generates valid confluence data because i've got no way of doing that unless i actually go and write a confluence data parser I basically reverse engineer the thing that i've just made um so what I did instead was to kind of break it down into smaller components. So um, let's check that, you know, it navigates the tree properly. Let's check that it generates the header. Let's check that it does numbered lists and tables and basically test all the individual components instead of trying to do one big, big test. Um, But yeah, I'd say that was kind of the most similar thing I've had to the dog, the dog generator where I kind of, found myself questioning well should i make a test that tries to actually look at the picture and determine if it's a dog or not
0: um yeah and we're um it's uh, unfortunate that at least i don't have a lot of uh, experience with testing actual images but um i did uh, was talking with uh stephanie herbert once and they do make a like an image compressor thing um and Um, asked her about the testing and they still had, they, they're, I mean, they're, they were looking at ways to automate it, but you can go pretty far with, uh, um, semi automation. Uh, for instance, you can have, you can have a, um, like generate, let's say generate like a a hundred different pictures of things that you think are supposed to be dogs and then a hundred different non-dogs and you can, uh, set them up on like, uh, You know, you can set 20 pictures at a time or something on a screen and say, you know, make sure all of these are dogs and let people, let actual humans check to make sure that your code is working. Um, There's, it's, it takes a, it takes a while to get better than people. Um, And uh, people time sometimes isn't that bad to just hire people to make sure that your dogs are dogs and your non-dogs are non-dogs. I mean... Mm. There is a place for manual testing still, especially if it's cheaper than uh, trying to figure out some AI system to to figure out whether or not your pictures are dogs.
1: Yeah. And you'd have to train the AI properly as well. Like if it – would it catch, you know, the app creating a dog with three eyes or something? Um, yeah. You know, how successfully would it do that? Well, how successfully would a human do that? I guess that's another question. But no, I've 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 definitely – I've been in that situation as well. Um I remember we're producing a, a mobile application um, and we wanted to figure out how to do automated testing, but we, we had to test it against uh, multiple versions of iOS and multiple versions of Android. And, uh, basically one of the solutions was we used, um, uh, a service from a, from, from like a testing provider. So there are actually companies out there that can test your stuff. You just pay them and they test whatever it is you want them to test, um, And they have a service for mobile applications Um, and what they have basically is a a bank of phones um, in a a huge line (laughs) Um, and they basically automate the loading of the phones um, with the application. Uh, and then they have another thing that's, that basically interfaces with the screens and it actually goes through and clicks the buttons and stuff and does all the validation. Um, and then if you can't produce a set of test steps, uh, which can be automated like that, then they, they have another option where you can pay, basically pay for someone to go and press the buttons for you. So, um, yeah, that's pretty, pretty common.
0: Um, and then I think there's a, there's a couple other things we probably should get to the, um, uh, there's, There's some stuff that just, you can't, it's, you really can't test. You really want to test just your code and you can't test it without the whole system. Um, like, uh, if you were like in in event driven architectures where, um, your piece of code is relying on some event happening and, uh, and then the output isn't really output. It's, uh, sending triggers to different parts of the system or something like that. Um, Those are places where it's just hard. It's, it's hard to isolate it. And it's also hard to, to, yeah, it's just hard to pick it apart and, and do that sort of mid-level integration test without grabbing everything. Um, Those are, I don't know why I brought that up because I don't really have an answer for that. Um, And then also um, once we do start, breaking the file up, um, and, uh, making it into smaller pieces. How do you go about doing that?
1: Yeah. I mean, I guess you could, um, look at characteristics of it. So, I mean, in the, in the case that this, the reader was sending in, it's, um, it's producing a proprietary output. So the format that it's producing is, is, is like a type of bootloader. Um, so saying, so, you know, how would you test that? And I, I, would actually look at basically Converting the process of creating the output into stages, and and then seeing how you would test each stage. Um, so you know if that is essentially unit testing what you're doing, but you're you're looking at the whole thing as a process as like a pipeline, yeah. and then you're saying, okay, if I, how can I split this up into logical stages? Um, and this is actually this is more of a refactoring mechanism um, that I've used in the past as well, where you look at a either a really, really long function, so something that shouldn't be, um, you know, it does 25 different things and it should really only do one or two. Um, How do you split that up into smaller components and then test each of the components? So um, that's where I just, you know, use comments to put step one, do this, step two, do that, step three, do this. And then actually think logically, how do you break it into stages? And then can you decouple those stages? Like which um, variables is that stage depending on, if I move them to a function, how would that work? Um, now, in other languages and some IDEs, you can actually highlight blocks of code and say convert to a, to a method or a function, um, and it'll actually do all that work automatically for you, um, which is really, really helpful. Oh, yeah. And the output's not not always super clean. Um, I'm pretty sure PyCharm can do that because um, I know that the JetBrains tools in C# can definitely do that. ReSharper can do that. Um, you can basically highlight blocks of code and say, "Make this a function," and it and then anyone that calls it, it gets re-referenced. So it, it does a lot of the refactoring work for you. Hmm. Neat. Yeah, and then if you've got a, a a stage or a step which has kind of been decoupled from the process And you know what the inputs are and you know what the outputs are then you can test it That's a lot easier than trying to test, you know, whether or not it's a dog now You're just looking at, you know, how it calculates the width of the dog or the color um, And you're saying given this input does it produce yellow or or brown as the fur type? Ki- that the fur type
0: Yeah um the, yeah, difference and um, stuff like data pipelines are going to be similar as uh, to try to try to um, figure out which stages of a data pipeline, for instance, that are are there's different characteristics at different stages where you can test to make sure things are still not haywire. Um, I'm talking about this as if I know data science. I'm, I don't. Um, I've just talked to <laughs> enough, en- enough people that do it that know that, that I know that there's a. The staging of data science as well.
1: Um, I don't think I've ever seen any testing in in <laughs> any of the data science stuff that I've seen. So I don't know how how they do that. Like how you would even write tests around something like a Jupyter notebook, for example. Like um, if that's even done.
0: I hope it's tested. Um, otherwise, we've got a lot of a lot of conclusions being drawn on the world uh, on data science that on untested code, and that would be creepy. <laughs> the more I get into testing, the more I get into talking to different people about how they do it. Uh, the more of a miracle it is that all of the software that's running in the world right now still runs. But part of it is because people just manually test it. I mean, think people do just um, it isn't that things aren't tested. It's things, but people manually test pieces of it while they're developing it. And unless they run into cases where they didn't think about it, or they're changing it, uh, the code. To apply to different situations where it really is not valid, um, usually that's okay. I'm I'm not one of those people that thinks that legacy code without tests is necessarily terrible code. It may be uh, dependent on a lot of different pieces, and it's hard to pull it apart. But it doesn't make it bad if it's if it's producing valid output and making people money. Um, that's a good thing.
1: So when you're when you're writing tests. Do you, do you look at it as though you're, you know, you're looking at something and trying to figure out how to test it, or are you looking at it and trying to find the bugs?
0: The, the finding bugs thing isn't something I, th- that's not where my mindset is. Um, I'm trying to validate or trying to find out if, uh, a piece of software is doing what it should be doing in the, uh, if I'm, if it's being used as it's intended to be used, and then also common mistakes um, and looking at uh, common mistakes or common places where developers tend to not think about. Um, so I, and uh, the, the given when then strategy of behavior, different development works for me. Um, I don't use Gherkin. Um, I use Python code and Pytest test code. Uh, but uh, the notion of saying, breaking up a problem of uh, given a certain situation, if I do one action, if or a certain system state, if I do one function call or one action or some some method, then what output do I expect? And sometimes it's actual output. It's the, the output data, but, but often it's a change to the system. Um, and the change to the system can be tested. Um, so those are the happy path pieces but then i break apart each piece and say um is my given valid that that how many different given states are valid and invalid and what happens if i like uh like uh, in the case of um i don't know turning on the engine um uh push it you know turning the ignite uh ignition switch on a car um given that the engine's off if you push the ignition or you know, turn on the ignition, you should have an engine that's on afterwards. But what if it's already on? What are those? What's the, what's the uh, condition supposed to be then? And how do you test that? Um, what's, what's supposed to happen then? And then also output. Um, if the, I look at all the different kinds of output, is there, is there invalid output? And how do I produce that? Um, and then all of the error conditions, hopefully finding those error conditions and making sure that we know what those look like. Um, and looking, and that's about w- where I stop, uh, usually. And that thought processor is really pretty quick. And it's usually just me writing down a handful of test cases that should be written for a given piece of code and then just writing them and, uh, running it on the code and making sure that the output and the behavior seems reasonable. Um, and then I move on and on testing on other stuff. Um, uh, and then when, uh, we run into problems, uh, I throw more effort at, um, testing pieces that, uh, give us trouble or pieces that there's a lot of, uh, areas where you can, you can focus more energy on, on, uh, uh, like for instance, if there's a really complicated algorithm in the middle of something, then focusing some testing around that is a good idea. Um, and I do that. Um, also, uh, you know, Pieces that everybody seems to shy away from and it's code that's like, you know, we don't touch that much because every time we touch it, it breaks stuff. Um, uh, well, one, I I have a temptation to just say, well, we definitely need to completely rip that out and rewrite it then because nobody should be c- c- scared of the code. But sometimes you don't have time for that. So um, uh, making sure that there's some like we talked about regression tests around that to make sure that. Uh, uh, known conditions that do crop up ha- happen because and it's kind of fun to uh, intentionally put in bad data because you need to be able to see what the output's supposed to look like. And I, I've had several cases where um, you can't detect it. The, the uh, bad data is undetectable. And then we have to refactor part of the system to make sure that air conditions are not eaten and that they're displayed correctly or because, uh, because um, I, um, Well, you know, I'm biased, though, because I I work in an environment where we produce test output, like um, uh, actual test equipment numbers, uh, like uh, um, and uh, electronic companies are depending on those numbers. So the worst thing is not to crash. The worst thing is to give numbers that are wrong. Um, I'd much rather Mm -hmm. crash the system than give a wrong number. Um, Now, that's. It's probably not the case for a lot of environments, but in my environment, that's that's true. So we do uh, lots of testing around our measurement data to make sure that our measurement values are correct. But anyway, that was a long answer. Sorry about that.
1: That's okay. And you would you say you would say you're more of an optimist than in terms of your approach?
0: Well, things like um, when I don't know what you mean by optimist. I, I I don't think of I don't think there's any developers in the system that are malicious. So. Um, We don't, I don't, it's a closed system as well. So I don't have to test against somebody trying to hack into the system or something Um, since it's not a network
1: system. It's a, it's a closed environment. And so in, in terms of like an optimist, I mean, so if I'm looking at testing something and assuming I've written, I go into it assuming that I've made mistakes and my approach is basically I'm just trying to write tests. That find where my mistakes are. Huh. Okay. So I'd say that I'm a I'm a pessimist. Um whereas in your kind of in your response, what you were describing is that you're looking at uh, in terms of the testing approach, is you're surrounding the application with almost like padding and structure to give it um to make sure that the inputs and outputs are correct and valid. So it's a bit more optimistic in your approach. E-
0: yes. I guess. There's a lot of bugs that can be, can exist and still actually have functional software. Um, yeah, that's why I tend to shy away from unit tests quite a bit because, um, there's a lot of, there's a lot of code that doesn't handle corner cases very well, mm. but there's a lot of code that never hits the corner cases. So even if it doesn't handle it very well, that's probably okay. Um, like I was, a uh, I think about the – I'm the kind of person that keeps me up at night thinking about uh, Um, (laughs) over-testing. Because, I mean, your code is the – there's maintenance cost to code. And it's true of your test code just as much as it is your production code. Um, So if I've got a – if I put a test around a piece of the system to try to test all the corner cases and some of those fail, should I fix it? If I, and the, if I, and it depends kind of on can, can the end user ever hit those corner cases? So if I can, if I can, if I can fail some code at a unit test level, but that, that failure cannot be reached from a system level, then eh, it's a trade-off. Um, depends on how long, if it's like a few minutes to fix the code, then go for it, fix it. Um, but it's not really broken as far as the system's concerned.
1: Yeah. Okay. I see what you mean.
0: Like, um, like our dog generator, if nobody actually ever tries to generate octopi with it, um, if it, uh, <laughs> if it breaks when you put in octopi and eight legs, um, uh, that's probably okay because we don't really need eight legged dogs.
1: Yeah. You could, you could definitely do that a lot with Python because, um, you make a lot of assumptions in Python about the type which is being parsed. And I don't see many tests that say, oh, let's check what happens if we send it instead of a string, we send it an integer or a list or a tuple or, a, you know, an unexpected type. I don't see many of those tests. And at the same time, I don't see a lot of statements at the top of functions saying Let's check that the input is a string. Let's check the input is a list, um, you know, which in Python you'd say if is instance variable, comma, types. Um, I, you know, I don't see a lot of that code, whereas I do in, in weirdly enough, in more strongly typed languages, such as um, C Sharp and Java, for example, you typically have a lot of um, null reference checks um at the top of each function um why is i see that a lot less in python um but a lot of the bugs that i see in python are because of um you know x is not a property of none type so um yeah i don't know if that's a characteristic of the language people are a bit more uh, trusting or maybe even naive about typing and dealing with typing um and writing tests that deal with bad or unexpected values
0: yeah like, for instance, OK, um, the, the, the uh, properties of none comes up a lot, actually, um, because we've got um, it actually came up last week. I had to, to talk with somebody about it because uh, there was a test that failed and the failure stated that the um, that uh, none cannot be dereferenced or you can't take the uh, index of it or something like that. Um, and basically it's because we were. Uh, expecting a list to come back and trying to get the first element of the list and uh, using the bracket operator, and you can't do that on None. If if the if a list doesn't come back and None comes back instead, it doesn't work. Um, but the you know Python's good enough that the, if you start looking at the tracebacks, um, uh, you can try to figure that stuff out. Not too bad. Anyway. Yeah. Um, I think that we've generated, probably generated a lot of ideas and, um, I'd like to have, uh, people, uh, get in touch with, uh, with the show and with us, um, to try to tell us other situations that, that maybe they've got, uh, better solutions or maybe they've got some other ideas of different things that we want to be able to test. And like I said, if it's a event driven system, I have no idea how to test that. Um, (laughs) maybe we could get somebody on that does. Uh, and then you've got like, uh, uh, asynchronous code. I haven't really got into trying to, to test asynchronous stuff, but I guess it's like, I don't know if you had black box type stuff. I, I, I use Python to test multi-threaded C C applications. So, um, uh, it shouldn't be too bad. If you, if you just yeah, wrap... I still
1: haven't, I still haven't managed to successfully write any asynchronous code in Python. So, um, let alone, let alone test it.
0: <laughs> yeah um so uh let's uh let's leave that topic um alone for a little bit so one of the things is i want to have more episodes of testing code and i realized that i was i was recording python bytes every week because i do it with michael but i'm not recording uh testing code all the time so i'm trying to hit up as many friends as i can to do this with me to try to get me on the uh to do it more and um anthony is one of the people that has agreed to um come on the show more frequently and i really appreciate
1: it yeah thanks happy to be here
0: and uh in any um yeah uh that's a good place to stop thanks for talking to me today
1: sure thanks brian that's been really fun